This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. Hello, everyone. This is Felina for SE Radio. I'm here today with Zachary Burtz. Zach was born in Palo Alto in 1987, and since 2003, he's been working both as an individual contributor and in leadership roles. In 2007, he sold his PHP application Lame Factor to WikiU and launched a software consultancy business. He's passionate about open source, both in submitting pull requests and launching open source projects. Welcome to the show, Zach. Hi, Felina. I am super excited to be here, and thank you. Cool. Let's go then. I think that most people know what freelancing is. They have an idea what it means, but could you give your definition of freelancing? Absolutely. So I see freelancing as performing a la carte tasks for uh, firms. So rather than being on a salaried employment schedule, you are uh, either paid hourly or on a per project basis for the work that you deliver. So this, there's also a change here in the social contract between you and the firm. So in most uh, Western cultures, there's a social contract that when you're an employee, the firm will take care of you to a certain extent. Maybe they will provide uh, certain health benefits or um, perhaps coordinated through the state, they will provide certain unemployment benefits should your position be made redundant. But with freelancing, there is no social contract to that extent, and you are just pretty much being paid in exchange for the work that you deliver. So in a normal employment job, uh, there will be some downtime and you'll be paid for that anyway. And if for some reason your manager isn't active in putting you to work, you're gonna receive a paycheck anyway. Whereas with freelancing, you're being paid for actively delivering results. Uh, that answer already touches upon so many things we will cover in the show today. So you mentioned benefits, you mentioned the social contract, you mentioned how to how to deal with downtime, and we will talk about all of those things later in the show. So I'm really happy with your definition. That's so all-encompassing. But I'm also oh, really curious you. about your personal story. Did you always freelance or did you work for a boss before? That's a great question. Um, and now I don't want to be pedantic, but you know, when you are freelancing, uh, you do have a boss. Your bosses are your clients. Yeah. So, sure. um, but uh, my very my very first foray into the world of professional development was as a freelancer rather than as a full time employee. I started freelancing when I was fifteen years old. I was in a high school computer science class, and instead of paying attention to the lecture, I was finding freelance work for myself. Uh, there, was this, there was this web forum that was very popular back in the day called the Something Awful Forums. And I found my first client through uh, the web forums there. I didn't even realize that I was being a freelancer. Someone needed help with something, and I wanted to help, and then uh, he paid me afterwards. And so that was the, that was that was my start, um, and then uh, I was very fortunate when I was seventeen 
to find an internship with a local software company. And I had a boss then. It was it was definitely like that kind of you know employee uh, boss relationship. But um, I, we were we were it was a very collaborative internship, and I started doing projects. I was inspired by the work that we did together, and I started doing projects on my own independently. And a couple of years later, one of my projects took off, and then people started approaching me and asked me to freelance for them. And that's when I started consulting. Now, the term freelancing and consulting, uh, they're kind of uh, false equivalents. Uh, Sometimes they're used interchangeably. Consulting is generally a little bit of a higher end implication. So if you're consulting, you're going to be charging at a higher rate, whether it's hourly or daily, weekly, or or project-based for a fixed deliverable. Um, whereas freelancing has a little bit of a lower end implication. Um, but in, in, in practice, they are interchangeable. Uh, but there, there are some nuances there. I hope that helps. Yeah, I, I think if I, the, my personal definition indeed is if you're a freelancer, you're maybe closer to a, a programmer or a developer. Whereas if you're consulting, maybe you're closer to a manager or a project lead. You're a little bit higher in the hierarchy of the company as well. Does that make sense? I would say that, yeah, I would definitely agree with that definition. When, when you use the word consultant, uh, you're almost always going to be responsible for delivering some kind of business result. Yeah. Whereas with freelancing, it's more about, say, doing a la carte tasks. Like one example that I use in a book is if you told me, you know, I, you know update my web page and then you tell me exactly what to do and I deliver you the code, that could be a freelance assignment. But if I tell you, well, no, I'm going to update the web page for these reasons, and it's going to result in this change in conversion rate or this change in user behavior, and that's closer to a consulting role. Where I definitely see uh, consultants as uh, being more in touch with the bigger picture of the business. Yeah, so they're more thinking along about business cases and customers rather than just delivering software. Yes, absolutely. And and require a little bit more self-management, self-starting, and uh, beginning with the end in mind rather than caught up in the technical details. Yeah, I see. But for the remainder of this show, let's just use freelancer as the word for both these type of roles. Then I don't have to say freelancer or consultant all the time. (laughs) That sounds good to me. Why do companies want freelancers? What is the benefit from the company side of having freelancers rather than full-time employees? Sure. So if a company has a specific project that they need delivered that they don't have the in-house resources available to do, then they will turn towards an external consultant. Like, for example, let's say you're a manager and you have a project that you believe is going to deliver a high ROI or return on investment to your firm. It's going to have a good result, but your full-time employees are busy with another high-priority task. I mean, it's always the case that there's too much work and not enough resources, but sometimes, especially if you have a task that's going to generate a positive return on investment for doing, 
then companies will look outside the organization to find a freelancer who can take care of a specific uh, one-off task, you know, and that may not require uh, having deep knowledge of the company culture or other systems, uh, but generally companies will look to find a freelancer when there are projects that they have a very strong confidence of having a good return on investment. And then where's the threshold? Is there an ideal percentage of freelancers? Because the way you describe it now is as a company, I could also just use only freelancers for all these tasks and maybe only have a C-level employees to steer all of the freelancers. Is that a good idea? It's definitely a possibility. And I, uh, I think that we are shifting as a global economy increasingly towards this type of sharing economy or gig economy uh, type of uh, trading system. So uh, with I, that's, that's my perception of the macroeconomic trend is that we're going to see more and more freelancing, especially as employers are discouraged from maintaining full-time employees because people want to work remotely and uh, there may be penalties at at least in the U.S., there are penalties at the state level for retaining full-time employees. You have to pay additional taxes. Uh, additionally, in, in the U.S., I can tell you that through the Bureau of Labor Statistics, one in seven web developers are self-employed freelancers. Wow, that's quite a high number. I was, I'm surprised. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, th I think we're going to see uh, that percent uh, increasing uh, going forward. But let's also remember that the vast majority of web development is WordPress. And I don't want to insult WordPress or PHP. You know, they're both excellent tools for the right type of problem. But in the more hardcore software engineering community, people tend to sort of sneer at WordPress and PHP as not being the most programmer-friendly tools due to a number of reasons, speed, syntax inconsistencies, that type of thing. But the vast majority of websites, the, the number one platform for websites on the internet is WordPress. So uh, there's a, a long tail of websites that need to be built. Essentially, every business needs its own website. and um, the, you know, the first step right now, the, the easiest thing for them to do is just put up a Facebook page. But if they want their own website, then they have to start looking at either WordPress or tools like Wix or Squarespace. And while those tools are, you know, decent enough, if you want to do any level of sophisticated customization, not even sophisticated, but anything other than just the basic, you know, text, images, videos, and basic forms, you're going to need uh, a web developer to help customize that. So you think in the future, there's going to be a bigger market even for more freelancing jobs because of these relatively small specialized tasks that companies need to outsource? Yeah, well, I can tell you that the market for software developers is unquestionably growing. Uh, the, the phrase in the startup community is software is eating the world. And I don't, I don't know exactly how true that is, but I can tell you that there are more jobs for programmers than ever.
And I can also tell you that there's a macroeconomic trend towards gig economy style labor. Now, of course, a lot of that is driven by the big players in the market like Uber and Lyft, who you know, have more uh, independent contractors. And that is definitely shifting the market. But uh, I am seeing that there is an increased demand for uh, freelance uh, talent, you know, at, at all ends of the market and both the high end and at the low end. Yeah, so we, you talked about skills already a little bit when you answered the question. You said companies need people with a specific skill. So what type of skills, what type of programming or content skills do you need to be a developer? Is there like a unique skill or a few skills that you think are really marketable? Or can it just be any type of programming you're good at? A great question. Uh, so the first thing I'm going to say is that if you are hungry for freelance work and you need income ASAP, the number one technical skill to learn is WordPress development. <laughs> I, I wish it weren't the case, honestly. I mean, uh, uh, my, the first programming language that I really used seriously independently was Perl. And uh, then, I, then I did move into PHP a bit. And once I moved out of PHP, you know, I just, I realized, you know, uh, there, there are other high level languages that are a lot nicer, but just having PHP WordPress skills and some JavaScript HTML CSS skills is, is definitely the kind of skill that will put food on the table now, if you need it now. And if you need to go out and make money today, the number one thing you could do is have WordPress as a skill. It is something that you can fall back on because there is just such a huge demand for WordPress work and WordPress customizations. I mean, when you're in, when you're in a software engineering firm or so, or a software engineering department, you don't think about it because nobody in the snobby developer community really talks too much about PHP and WordPress. But it it is the most prominent, predominant uh, skill required. And I, I have a tool that spiders a lot of freelance listings. And I can tell you that just statistically, the most jobs that I see require WordPress and JavaScript as a skill. Now, I want to make an important distinction and say that for freelancing, uh, something that's equally important to having the technical skill is having the sales skill. So being able to build trust with a client and get them to agree to work with you is just a tremendously important skill for freelancing. Um, th then there are the other, you know, soft skills around that, like getting them to actually pay you and keeping them as a client so you don't have to go find new clients all the time. But uh, generally having that sales, a little bit of a sales soft skill, making sure that you aren't like, insulting them by criticizing their technical knowledge or lack thereof and just that sort of you know warm politeness uh, empathizing being able to imagine what they're feeling and speak to their feelings those are just very important skills to have as a freelancer yeah that's a great answer actually my second next question was going to be what's what soft skills do you need and I like your answer about the, the sales skills, but it feels to me a little bit like the sales skills you're describing are more important 
during a project and before a project. If I think about sales, that's like, how am I going to get customers? But what you're describing is more about how to retain customers and make sure that you can continue to work for them. Is that correct? Is that the most important part of the sales skill? Yes. Uh, communication is the most important thing. Managing expectations through communication. So being in touch, being communicating respect is a very important thing at sort of like an animal level. Uh, making sure that you're not, you know, communicating that, you know, I am better than you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, being, you know, it's it's a tricky balance, balancing having the confidence of, that, of being an authority without being insulting to the other person. Like you see on for, web forums like Hacker News, you see people just tearing each other to, to shreds all the time. And when you're dealing with a prospective client, you have to be very careful about that. And, uh, you know, being very respectful of them and understanding that perhaps they may not be as sharp as you technically, but, hey, they're the ones with the business and they're the ones who would be writing your check and, you know, paying you in the first place. So it's important to keep that in mind. Now, when, when I talk about this, the, before you get the customer, the most important thing is building trust. So making sure that they believe what you say and that you are the person who can solve their problem. And there are a variety of ways you can do that. Um, you know, one, the best you know, way to do that is to get someone they know to uh, sing your praises. So that, that's probably the, the most surefire way for building trust. But another way to build trust is just uh, social proof. So for example, having a social media account with a lot of followers, that can be a very powerful signal. Having a web portfolio where people can see the results that you've delivered. And people come to me a lot and they say, you know, I don't have a portfolio because I'm a back-end developer. And I've never built a system from scratch by myself so how can I have any sort of web presence to show off, you know, the business logic that I wrote? You know, I, I would feel disingenuous showing screenshots of the front end of a website that I worked on the back end for. So my answer to that is, one, it's okay to talk about the front end and show as long as you make it very clear that you worked on a different aspect of the system. And the next is, you should be able to get a reference from anyone you work with. And if you have them as a reference, then you can say, I, you know, I, I may not have a portfolio or you may not even need to mention a portfolio, but here is someone I've worked for. Here's their contact information. Uh, you know, ask them honestly about my performance and they will be able to tell you. And getting uh, anyone you work with, whether it's an employer or a freelance client, you should try to both ask them for a reference. And if it's a freelance client, also ask for referrals. So say, do you have anyone in mind who could also benefit from my services? Right now, I'm, I have the ability to take on some new clients. And that's a great way because getting a referral from someone you trust in the real world um, is one of the best uh, buying signals. Those are all great tips. And I have a few more things that you might think of in terms of marketing that I want to really hear your opinion on. 
For example, what about speaking at conferences? I know this is a thing that freelancers do. Do you think that's worth it? Because it takes lots of time to travel to a conference and to prepare a great talk. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's one of the best channels for demonstrating that you're an authority in the subject matter and uh, also the social proof angle that other people find what you say to be value enough, valuable enough so that they actually pay attention to what you're saying. So if you can get uh, a conference speaking gig, that is awesome. And hopefully it'll be recorded and you can put it up on your website and you can put it on your CV and you can easily have a slide during your presentation that says, by the way, I do uh, consulting. Uh, feel free to get in touch with me. My info's on the website, easy to Google, but that sort of thing. And if you have a web presence, you definitely want to make sure that you have a contact me link. Uh, you know, don't really worry too much about obscuring your email from spammers. Don't make people solve a puzzle <laughs> in order to contact you. Um, you know, there's some tricks you can do, like putting part of your email in like a span tag to, to fool some of the email uh, harvesting software. But you want to put your contact information readily available. And you also want to make it absolutely clear that you're available for consulting work, whether it's on your LinkedIn or your web page or your social media. If you're blogging or if you're giving talks on conferences about technical topics, that's a great lead gen channel for clients who are looking for an authority to help them and may be interested in paying for that. Yeah, you mentioned blogging. I want to ask more a little about content marketing as well. So blogging, but also recording podcasts, things like that can also show your authority, but it also takes a lot of time. So do you think that that is worth it? Or maybe what do you think is the best way? Is a conference talk better than a few blog posts or a few social media posts? Yeah, you know, um, if you can get accepted to conference talks, give a conference talk. Absolutely. Everyone I know who does consulting and also gives talks has so much business. Um, in terms of blogging, some people are going to be able to just find you through search, but um, it helps if you also submit your content to social media aggregators. So it's not just build it and they will come you know, write the post and then submit it to either Hacker News or the specific technical Reddit that you're writing about um, and uh, put it on Twitter and tweet at some people who might like it. Getting people to discover your content is just as important. And, you know, you mentioned book. I wrote a book recently and I have to tell you, economically, Writing a book is not a good idea if you're just looking to make money from the sales of the book. Um, you, it's just, it's just not a smart proposition. You can make much better money for your time working a minimum wage job than you can for all the effort it takes to write a book. However, it becomes a very strong credibility indicator. So people are going to read your book and then contact you for services. And then when you tell clients that you've written a book, it's like it's a very good signal to them because uh, it, it, it's sort of a time-honored way of demonstrating credibility or believability so that when you say something, they believe it's true and they can trust it. 
So it, a book works more in the way, it's not that people will see your book in a store and they're like, oh, I need to call this guy for consulting. <laughs> it's more that when you're already speaking to people and they find out you have a book, then that's a good way to build the trust that you referred to earlier. Yes, absolutely. But if they happen to need help with something specific that you happen to have written a book about and you know they have a copy of that book, many times people will contact the authors of books and ask for help. I know yeah. I certainly have for, you know, various uh, programming manuals over the years for various topics. So let's talk a little bit more about going from the first contact to actually landing the job. You've, you've been in touch with someone that e emailed you through your book or your blog or whatever. And they're like, are you open for a new job? And you are. Then what happens? Because if you have a regular full-time employment, you have a job interview and probably a series of interviews with a technical person and maybe someone from HR. What is the process into a freelancing gig? There are a couple ideas that I want to share here. One is that um, it, it pays to be persistent in following up. Um, I know some salespeople who will follow up with a lead seven times before they give up on it. So if a lead goes dead, you know, you can consider emailing them once a week for seven weeks with, you know, a follow up. And it's when you're selling yourself as just something that you have to be able to feel comfortable with following up and persisting. Now, ideally, anytime you follow up, you want to also add some new information. For example, I've been thinking about your business. Here's an interesting article that you might uh, enjoy. Or have you considered this type of solution to your problem? So follow-up is definitely essential. Now, insofar as uh, scheduling interviews, uh, a lot of companies will, uh, if you're going to be freelancing for a big company, then yes, you may have to go through an interview process. But as long as you're transparent and honest about your situation, that is way better than just uh, lying about the issue and um, then uh, being flaky in your communication. You want to be as direct as possible when setting expectations. You want to know about how much time you have available per week. You also want to know about your proficiency and what kind of results the client can expect from that time period. And a lot of clients will be flexible about scheduling your meetings to be respectful of your working hours. Now a tip that I have uh, when you're freelancing and also working a full-time job is that I like to do my freelancing in the morning before I go into work because that way I'm fresh, I can put in some of my best hours there and then I, you know, I go into the job and you know, a lot of being at a full-time employee job is being, having downtime. You, know, you talk to programmers, developers, a lot of people say, you know, honestly, I only do about you know, maybe six hours of coding a week, the rest is meetings, stand-up meetings, uh, you know, uh, just various political things that you have to do, uh, town hall meetings, all that stuff. So if you're, if you're freelancing and your job is just delivering value, um, it works very well for a lot of people just work outside of office hours. Just 
don't freelance during the hours of your scheduled employment. Otherwise, you get into uh, da very dangerous territory and you open yourself up to some liability. And speaking of liability, um, I want to uh, uh, talk about one legal issue that's very important, and that's indemnification. So I'm not a lawyer. Um, but I can tell you that in any of your contracts, you want to have what's called an indemnification clause. And this basically says that if the code you write is then used by the company and then causes some sort of damage, then your liability is limited and whoever is being damaged can't sue you. They can only sue the company. And this is called an indemnification clause. And it's just, it's very important that you have that because it limits your risk. So going back to the process of landing a job a little bit, because we segued into legal issues that are very important sorry, as sorry. well. It's, a very, it's okay. It's a very good tip because I can understand that you can be ruined if you get sued. But I want to talk more about that process of you're in touch with a customer, for example, do you do some free work? You already mentioned it a little bit. If you follow up seven oh, times right. and you give them a tip, basically you're doing free work for them and you want to occur trustful and be helpful, but also you don't want to be stringed along. And then after months of you giving them free tips, they're like, yeah, I know we're going with someone else. So. Right. right. I, I, I totally understand the question. Yeah. I've been through this exact issue many times. So in essence, you want to do a little bit of free work at the very beginning. You know, if you come across, if someone asks you a basic question and then you say, hey, I'm not going to do free work for you, you know, then, you know, you, you risk coming across as kind of a jerk because in the beginning, it's really like an interview process. So you want to be consultative and give them value and get them, you know, more or less addicted to the value that you provide. But you know, w once you get in the door with, you know, a few back and forth exchanges where you're actually delivering value and they're not just testing the limits of your knowledge, but you're actually giving them insight, then the language or the phrase that I like to use is we're encroaching upon the limits of non-billable time. I'd love to assist you in this matter. Here's my contract. Let's get it signed and then we can continue. Yeah, so you don't say no immediately. You're just saying you're reaching the end of where I want to go for free. Well, I, I, I prefer to talk about it as non-billable time. Non-billable, yeah, but that's basically a euphemism for. Yeah, but it's, <laughs> yeah, but it's a little bit more polite and it's a little bit more yeah, delicate. Yeah, it's a little, little bit more professional. I totally get that. So is, is upselling a thing? You're working for a customer maybe a few hours a week or you're doing a project but you think there might be something bigger? Is this something you do and how do you go about it? Uh, it's something that I do and it's something that I do once I've developed some trust with the client. So once I have delivered results and they have paid me and my invoices are finalized and the money is finalized in the transfer, then, uh, and we've repeated this process a couple times, and I can say, you know, hey, you know, you know, you can refer them to someone else if you want to, if you want, and then you know, you, maybe you have a commission relationship with that person, 
or you say, you know, I could do this and this and this for you. It's totally a thing and it's a great idea, but you want to do that uh, once you've developed more trust. And this, this consulting freelancing process is really all about trust and developing a level of trust. And you need to build up to a certain level of trust in order to get them to bring you on. And then once you deliver results, then it will increase the level of trust. And I'd like to segue into a point here um, about that. So a lot of people have, you know, very strong skills and there's a lot of value that they could provide companies. But um, the way it works is that almost every freelance developer I know uh, gets their foot in the door through a client that's having a very specific problem with a very specific kind of technology. For example, I'm just going to use this as a for instance. Let's say the client is building a React application and they're blocked somewhere and they need to bring on a freelancer. By being very, very strong at React, you increase the level of trust you have for the client, which enables you to then pivot into doing other kinds of freelance work for them, such as not through React. You know, a lot of people, you know, you know, you see an ad, they're looking for, let's say, a Java developer. And you see the problem, you can you see, you know what? I know how to solve this, but I would not use Java, I would use Ruby. And, you know, nine times out of ten, that's not going to work. The client has their mind made up. They want someone with a very specific niche skill set. And then once you blow them away and deliver good results and value for them through, you know, your work, then what happens is your level of trust elevates and then you could start making recommendations. Oh, I want to solve this problem, but I want to use a different technology. And you tend to be able to get away with that a lot more because you have shown excellence in a very specific niche technical skill. So my advice is have a few things that you are very, very strong at to use to get your foot in the door. Because a lot of clients, they really want an expert with a specific technology. And I completely agree that it, that's, that's kind of a silly way of thinking, perhaps. And it's possible that they could do it a lot better just using the technology that you know best. Okay. But in order to build trust, just the, due to the dynamics, the social dynamics of the situation, what they really want is an expert in a specific technology. And... Once you have demonstrated your expertise in that specific niche technology, then you can pivot and do things for them using other technologies, using other types of solution paradigms, if you will. But uh, it, it's uh, people really want to see someone who will just knock their socks off with a specific technology. Yeah, clear. So you can only do upselling once you've gained trust and once you've sold them the thing that they have a need for. You don't immediately go, like you said, maybe being a jerk saying, oh, you're wrong and you should use this. First, you just <laughs> go with it, build trust, and only then you offer ideas or other services that you might be able to provide. Exactly. And it's just, it's, it's really annoying that that's how the dynamics of the freelancing market are. 
but uh, I've just seen it time and time again. The way to get your foot in with a client who might want you to be, you know, like a generalist CTO type for them is to be able to deliver excellence using the technology that they have in mind. Maybe there's a logic to it and I just, I haven't figured it out, but I can tell you that I've seen time and time again, client posts an ad, they, they use a buzzword, they may not know what the buzzword means, but they won't move forward until you demonstrate competence with the buzzword that they have in mind. It's just, and, one, and once you're there, you increase trust and you increase your ability to lead them elsewhere. And this happens in regular companies and regular employment situations as well, I think, where manager has set his heart on getting, I don't know, React or Node. And then even as full-time employee, it's sometimes hard to convince your manager that, no, they actually want something else. Or a customer, even if you're employed by a company, you have a customer that might want something. So the general strategy of doing what they want and only then showing expertise after you've built trust. I don't think it's even that specific to freelancing situation. This happens in, in regular employment situations also, I think. Do you yeah. agree? Yeah, that's been my experience as well. Yeah, absolutely. But I just I see I just see time and time again people who apply to ads saying, you know, I am awesome, you know, do it my way. You you gotta you got there's a thing in um in sales called pacing and leading. What, what does that mean, pacing and leading? Sure, so it means that when you uh, are dealing with a new prospect or group, you want to match the cadence and rhythm of their communication before you suggest elsewhere. So if someone is, if they're using React, you wanna go in with React, get, on pace with React, and then you can lead them elsewhere. Maybe you want to take them to Scala or Clojure or, you know, whatever tool that you find to be Elixir, maybe, whatever. I'm not going to get into a language war here. <laughs> but the idea is to match them exactly where they are and follow along at the same pace before you lead them elsewhere. Clear. Let's talk about finance. This is a topic that's sometimes hard for people to talk about. So you don't have to share your hourly rate, but I'm interested. Do you share, do you charge an hourly rate or do you charge customers for a finished project? In the rare event that a customer knows exactly what they're looking for and it's specified in great detail and it's not likely to change through building, like, for example, let's say they've already built a prototype and they've solved all the issues with the V1 and they're ready to build a V2. Then I'm open to a fixed price. But unless there is an exact specification that's very clear with a very clear set of deliverables that can be answered in a is this fulfilled? Yes or no type of way. I don't like doing a fixed price. I like doing... Um, Right now I charge an hourly rate and I also charge a markup on top of any subcontractors I use. So in uh, construction, this is referred to as time and materials. So this is the kind of model that general contractors will use when say building a house. They, uh, they charge a rate for their time 
and then they charge for any materials like for example web hosting fees or a subcontractor or a certain software as a service subscription that helps push things forward uh, I, what I charge is I charge an hourly rate for my time, I bill it in quarter hour increments, and then I charge a markup um, for any, you know, materials used. And uh, just in terms of my rate, right now I charge $185 an hour, and I do a markup of anywhere from 10 to 30% for uh, materials used. Do you regularly work with subcontractors or is that only if you need specific skills that you don't have yourself? I regularly work with subcontractors, yeah. If, uh, if I've built a lot of trust with a client, then they'll usually want to put me on multiple projects. And it's just sort of a law of development, software development, that you really can't do any good quality focused work if you're working on more than one project at a time. I think most software engineering management books will, will mention this. Uh, you really want to keep developers focused on one project at a time. So if I'm in a code base, and then I, I really only want to be in one code base at a time because I need to build up a good knowledge of the code base in my memory and in, in my short-term memory, and I need to be able to understand where everything is in order to be efficient. I need to keep a mental model of it. And when you're dealing with multiple code bases simultaneously, just the results suffer tremendously. So I, I deal with subcontractors very frequently nowadays. You just mentioned your hourly rate. How did you calculate that? If, if I want to charge an, an amount. How do I know what to charge? Is it just what the customer needs to pay or is there a formula I can use? Yeah, absolutely. So right now it's the formula it, for me is supply and demand. If I, you know, if I need work, I will, you know, lower my rate, but if I am getting swamped with requests for work, then I will incrementally increase my rate. And but let's talk about finding a baseline for your rate. Yeah. Yeah, no, that sounds good, the baseline, because I understand there's demand, but also how do you go about a baseline? Tell me. Sure. So you take your annual salary and you divide it by 2,000, and that's your baseline hourly rate. Okay, so what you're saying is 2,000 hours is more or less... Well, let's just, I'll use round numbers for the sake of discussion. Let's say that your salary is 100,000 a year in whatever local currency. Then you divide it by 2,000, and then you get 50, and that's your hourly rate. So that effectively is the formula for annualizing what your salary would be. And that's, that's where you want to put the floor of your hourly rate. Now, in practice, you want to set that higher for a number of reasons. One is because if you're freelancing, you're not getting all the benefits of employment. And the next is you don't have the stability, because when you're freelancing, you have to be hunting for work and there are going to be gaps in your, you're not going to be working for 40 hours a week necessarily. And, you know, you need to make up for that. But just as a floor, as a baseline, you take your, what your, what your annual salary would be on the market and then you divide it by 2000. But I'll tell you this, in practice, if you take your consulting salary, your freelancing salary, and then uh, you try to get an employment position, you'll find that you're going to be, if you are any good at sales, you're going to find that 
you're going to be ma making a much higher effective rate for your time as a freelancer. So for just as for example, some years ago, I was charging $85 an hour as a freelancer. And if I were employed full time, that would translate to $160,000 a year. But I found that I was struggling to get employment with jobs at an $80,000 a year salary. So you, you're may, as a freelancer, you can make a higher effective hourly rate for your time. But, you know, uh, you, there's the issue of finding work consistently. But also the bar to entry is lower. For example, as a freelancer, uh, I find that you're going to be subjected to whiteboarding interviews a lot less often. You're not going to get quizzed on algorithms. It's just a matter of, do you know the specific niche technology that the company is looking for at this time? Do you have experience? Have you done it before? And, you know, can, can you deliver results? So they're, you're, they're not gonna, there's going to be less you know, hazing or abuse through these whiteboard quizzes and these take-home assignments. Though occasionally I, I, I do see take-home assignments for freelancing interviews. But I, it's a much rarer to see the whiteboard algorithm questions. So are there other things you need to take into account? Because the formula is really nice taking your... Uh, annual income as a baseline, but of course you have other expenses if you're a freelancer. Maybe you need insurance, you need a, an employment insurance, you have to do savings for a pension, all these type of things. Does that all come out of that hourly rate you just described or are there extra things you need to do the extra costs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like I said, as a rule of thumb, that's just the baseline, that's the floor. And you want to, yeah, ideally, uh, double it. But the truth is, in freelancing, you want to charge as much as possible. You want to charge the rate that the market will bear. So if you know a company uh, is willing to pay you at a high rate, then you know then you want to charge a higher rate because you're right. You do have to take care of insurance. You have to take care of pension. You have to take care of uh, meals. A lot of co companies, uh, you know, give cater food for their employees nowadays. And you also have to make up for the inconsistency in work because work comes when it, when it rains, it pours. Is, the, <laughs> is an expression, and it's extremely true with freelancing. It's it's a bit like you know dating in that way. You know, when when you're desperate, you give off these signals, and just subconsciously, it uh, repels people. And the same thing is true when applying for work. So, yes, you definitely want to charge higher than the baseline minimum. But just as a heuristic, for example, if you're employed and you're looking for side work, you can just take your salary and divide it by 2000 to find your hourly rate. So if you're already employed full time and you're looking for some side, side income to supplement your income, then uh, just take your annual salary and divide by 2000 But you really want to increase it from there. I just have to say that um, there's a certain psychological pressure that companies don't want to pay a certain hourly rate above a certain hourly rate. For example, with PHP development, uh, you know, where, there, where there's a huge market because it's one of the most it's the most common language for web development. Now, 
Yeah, there are PHP developers available for $5 an hour. There are PHP developers that are available for $400 an hour. Now, the $400 an hour uh, PHP developers, you know, you really, in order to get to that level, you really need to have written a framework or, you know, several books, given lots of talks and, you know, have, you know, t maybe 10,000 plus followers on Twitter. Like, just, I don't know if those are exact numbers, but just as a rule of thumb, you need to be like a well-known persona in the industry in order to consistently get away with charging those rates. But a lot of companies will have a psychological aversion to um, a super high hourly rate. And even if you're an efficient developer um, who could get more done in one hour that someone at half your rate would take in five hours, even if that's the case, just psychologically, people aren't going to go for it. Um, and that's an issue. And uh, there are various ways around this, you know, and it really depends on uh, how, you know, how you feel morally. So what some people do is they charge, you know, they bill out at a lower hourly rate, but then they inflate their hours. Uh, I don't suggest doing this because, you know, one, the easiest way to, you know, not have to remember anything is just tell the truth. And also there's a question of integrity. Um, but I, I've seen very frequently in the industry, I talk to freelancers all the time and I see consistently that they will admit that when dealing with companies that don't want to pay a high hourly rate, they advertise at a low hourly rate and they just inflate their hours. Um, I'm not here to pass moral judgment. I can say I personally don't want to work with anyone who inflates their hours, but I can tell you that it happens all the time. So, uh, you know, uh, the other you know side of the coin is just charge your rate, even if it's low, get the work done efficiently, and then just move on and find new business. And just be secure in the fact that you have a baseline of clients who are going to be providing you income, and that will enable you to charge a higher rate with uh, new prospects. So yes, it's sort of start low yeah. and build up from there. Yeah, in in the lingo of business, uh, it's called a BATNA or a BATNA, which is a, a best alternative to no agreement. In other words, it strengthens your ability to walk away from a deal, which means yeah. a higher price. Those are great tips. I want to talk about one final topic before we uh, before we end the episode, and that's work life balance. Because even if you have a regular employment, it can be challenging to not check your email at night or not to do some work or take some work home or have a late night meeting. How do you manage that if you're a freelancer? How do you, how do, you do that personally? What do you think is the best way? Do you try to stick to office hours or do you work evenings and chill in the afternoon? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm laughing because I can tell you for a fact that I haven't fully cracked this nut. I haven't fully found the true work-life balance uh, path. And I can tell you that personally, I'm a, I'm a very ambitious person, so I'm okay with uh, trading a work-life balance to have more agency uh, in my career, uh, ultimately. Um, but 
uh, I can I can definitely provide some tips here and, and things that I've learned. So, for example, you know, when you are working as an employee in an office, you're going to have a peer group and sort of a built-in friend group. A lot of people socialize and make friendships with the people they work with. I mean, oftentimes you spend more time of your life with the people who you're in office with than you do, say, with your family or significant other. So you don't have when you're freelancing, you don't necessarily have that built in social environment. So you know, for me, I've had to find ways of making friendships outside of uh, freelancing. And uh, for me, that's been uh, one thing I've done a lot is uh, meetup groups. So not just meetup related to tech, and which is, by the way, a great way to find clients, but and, and a lot easier to get accepted to give a talk at a meetup than it is to get accepted to give a talk at a big conference. And it's a great marketing technique. And plenty of companies and people with the authority to influence hiring decisions at companies, including freelancer hiring, will attend these meetups. And it's much easier to get your foot in the door and experience giving talks and meetups. And one more thing I want to say is there's this myth that in order to give talks at conferences and meetups, you have to just be solicited and people have to reach out and ask you to do that. It's not the case. I can tell you for a fact that if you just make a list of meetups and you write to them and say, hey, I'm an expert in this topic. I'd love to give a talk about it at the next meetup. Uh, a lot of people will say, yes, that would be awesome. Meetup.com is a great resource for that. Um, there are a lot of uh, sports clubs, such as and everything from bowling leagues to softball are, is a good way to meet people. There are a lot of bars uh, where it's, they have, if a bar has Wi-Fi, you could probably go with a book or a laptop and meet people. And there are, you know, it becomes acceptable in a lot of places if the bar has Wi-Fi. It's implied that there's going to be certain people on their laptop. You can work from a bar or a coffee shop, and that can be a great way to meet people. And, you do you know, regularly do that? Do you work from bars and coffee shops, or do you work at the customer's office, or do you work from home? Oh, yeah. I, I, um, I, I hate going on-site to a customer office. I really, really try to avoid that whenever possible because they're just increased costs. First off, you don't get paid for the commute time, so that time definitely adds up. Second is that as a freelancer, you know, there's, there's generally a higher standard for dress when you have to go into the office. You know, the, yeah. If you're charging a high hourly rate, People want to see you in, you know, you know, business casual or fancier dress, and then that creates costs because you know then you have dry cleaning expenses, and you know, and then it just it's a lot more effort to have to get all groomed up every day, going on site, and I also find that I get less work done when I'm on site. But you know, of course, you want to FaceTime with clients is very valuable. And you want to build that relationship wherever possible. But I found that, you know, clients enjoy the FaceTime more when you take them out of the office. Like a really good way to keep a client who sends you a lot of business is to take, you know, maybe 5% of the income that you make from them 
and just invest that in treating them to really nice dinners, nice seats at a sporting event, you know, whatever they might be interested in. So that, that's just a, a miscellaneous note. And in terms of, you know, balancing your schedule, what I recommend is just being communicative with a client about your hours so they aren't surprised. And so they know when they can get a hold of you and when they can't. And be very careful about starting a pattern where the client feels comfortable calling you at 10 p.m. or on the weekend, because once you start that, they're not going to want to give that up. So it's very important to enforce a boundary on that from the beginning if that's something that's important to you. But that might contrast a little bit with the trust you're building or the relationship you have in the beginning because you said you have to sort of follow their pace. So if this is a thing they do, then you, your, your advice still is to keep your own, protect your own way of doing it and maybe then not have a customer. It's right. It's, I mean, well, yeah. Okay. So now I'm hemming and hawing a little bit, um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I will say you definitely want to be on board with whatever technology that they want to use in the beginning. I've also found that if, if a client is consistently calling you on the weekend, you know, it's just, they're not a good client because these kinds of clients tend to be very costly in terms of emotional stress. Just like, you know, if you have a job where you're, they're working you like a dog for 60 hours, 70 hours, 80 hours a week consistently, it's probably not going to be the best work environment. Clients who, you know, want you on the weekend to be working all the time, I just, I, I'm thinking back through my years and years of experience and it's almost never ended well. I mean, the only time that kind of thing I think has worked is when the client is also a developer and they're working side by side with you during the weekend. But if it's a client who's just barking orders at you during the weekend, I found that uh, those clients tend to be bad news. Just the stress that they cause is not worth uh, the value, you know, and then they get surprised when you send them a bill for all the hours that they have run up. So it's very important to set expectations and manage expectations there. And I'm on my journey too. I haven't fully perfected this balance. I've been at it. I've been freelancing since, well, like officially since 2007, you know, even before that, I guess since 2003. So yeah, I've been at it a while and I haven't fully perfected this. I mean, it's, it's an art as well. I mean, there are some formulas. There is that heuristic of the divide by 2000 to get the very baseline, but there's okay. always room for growth, you know, yeah. but I, I, I found that clients who are very demanding at nights and weekends, you know, those are the clients that are going to give you a hard time about paying your invoice. So you want to pace and lead, but if a client is constantly hammering you on the weekends and pestering you constantly, these kind of difficult clients are going to be the ones who you will see problems when you send them an invoice. I've seen this repeatedly. So be very careful. It's a bad sign. If they don't have their stuff in order, they need to call you in the weekend. Other stuff will be bad also. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a red flag. And it's be very careful flag. when you see red flags from clients because although there can be some exceptions, 
you should, to an extent, trust your instincts, especially if you've been freelancing for a while. But I will say that if you're just a developer and you haven't had any experience in sales, maybe don't trust your instincts and 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 be open to sort of a softer, less precise, more uh, rhythmic approach to to sales. So don't think that clients are just trying to abuse you and get work for free. Remember that if they're asking you specific technical questions, they're not necessarily just trying to get your work for free because they may not even be able to implement. They just want to see what you know and see if you admit when you don't know things. So just remember that early in the process, it can just be an interview just as much as anything else. And it's not like they're trying to squeeze work out of you for free necessarily. Oh, one more thing that I want to mention. When you're a freelancer, it's less an employer-employee relationship and more of a business-to-business relationship. Therefore, it can be totally appropriate to ask the client for references. Just as an employer might ask you for references before they hire you, if you're a freelancer, you can definitely offer an exchange of references with the client. It both, you know, puts you in a more of a power position socially by checking them just as they check you, and that can help with the sales process, but it will also help you avoid some bad clients. Yeah, that's a great tip where you ask other freelancers what their uh, experiences with the customer have been. Exactly. Great. Or fellow freelancers. Thanks a lot. That was really great. Lots to process. I just want to ask you one more question and that's where can we follow you? Of course, we've mentioned your book. We will put a link to your book in the show notes, but are there other places where we can follow you and learn more about these freelancing tips? Sure. So I have a website called Code for Cash. It's a software as a service. And what we do is we scour the internet for uh, freelance job leads. And so we're constantly monitoring over 50 different job boards, looking for contract opportunities, both on-site and remote, uh, 1099 or contract-based versus full-time employee. And we have a human intelligence team that takes all these data that we ingest and adds metadata to make the filtering process better. And then you can we have a sophisticated uh, keyword positive keyword, negative keyword matching system, and then we send real-time alerts in Slack. So if you've been freelancing for a while, you'll notice that what you'll do is when you're looking for work, you'll occasionally browse various markets. You know, you may even have an RSS reader set up, but we just take that to the next level. So if you're interested in about the lead gen system for freelancers, check out Code for Cash, and I'll give Felina a, a link to that. Yeah, we'll make sure that that is in the show notes as well. Well, thanks again for being on the show. It was great. Oh, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. And, you know, part of me is sorry that it's ending. Thanks. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at se-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. 
Thanks for listening.